So, Thomas, what are we doing here today? Uh, today we're at a, we are at a rally for the Futsus United campaign. We're joined by the Cup W National Convention on a march up Bay Street to Nathan Phillips Square. So it's kind of a dark time politically uh, in this city, in this province. Uh, a lot of people are tapping out. A lot of people aren't get, getting engaged. Here I'm seeing a bunch of people who are getting engaged on the grassroots level. What do you think about that? Um, yes, I've heard that that's the real polarization of our generation, that we're moving one of two ways towards uh, uh, getting organized and then uh, towards sort of dropping out. So I'd say that like this last year has been like bleak politically, like bad news after bad news. And the one thing that has sort of saved my spirit as I've moved through this time has been able to directly plug into something that I can see benefiting the world around me. And so it's so, it's, I can see the temptation to, to drop out because it's so rough out there. But I got to say, this feeling of possibility that I have working on this campaign is such an antidote to that, to, to, to the pain um, that's happening every day in the world. Yes, um, I'm so excited by uh, people remembering how uh, powerful they can be when they come together. Um, and that that's, a, that's an infectious idea uh, and, will, and, and, and spreads in a really, really beautiful way. Um, and so I just want people to, to, to recognize the proud history of fighting for, for changes in all sorts of places um, and uh, how they are, can be a part of uh, that uh, continuity. This is Thomas McKechnie, and you're listening to Spacing Radio. Yeah? Yeah? Like that? Something like that. We are back in the broom closet at 401 Richmond Street West, Toronto, Ontario. I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we preview the latest issue of the magazine, all about laneways, with a piece I worked on about the laneway project. And we ask activist organizer Dave Meslin about his new book, Teardown, Rebuilding Democracy from the Ground Up. But first, we ask Urban Strategies, Inc. partner Joe Barrage about his own book, Perfect City, an urban fixer's global search for magic in the modern metropolis. Stand by. All right, so Joe, to begin, uh, can you tell me a little bit about Urban Strategies, what it is and the work that you do uh, globally? Urban Strategies is a Toronto-based design and planning firm, uh, and uh, we started off very small, Frank Bloomberg and I, about uh, 30, 35 years ago, uh, and now we've got to be a firm that amazingly uh, does projects all over the world. So we are active right now across Canada, in the States, uh, in Asia, in Europe, um, and essentially what we do is everything that has to be done before you get to architects. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to figure out what is this project all about. Uh, it's trying to do the negotiation with particularly the cities, but with the big interests uh, that surround any major piece of urban land, and figuring out in, in general dimensions what are the goals of this project, uh, what are the constraints, how are we going to make it somewhere remarkable. Um, and that's been a lot of fun, and it's taken me to a whole bunch of cities all over the world. Right. 
I mean, it, it speaks to something that you address in the book, which is uh, that uh, a lot of, in a lot of places, particularly in Toronto, uh, developments, that kind of thing, major projects meet with an initial uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction. But uh, now you're seeing in the city a lot of friend-end loading of the consultation process and that kind of thing. I'm thinking about like Bloor and Dundas, those yeah. sort of areas, uh, yeah. to an extent, uh, what's going to happen with uh, the re-envisioning of Mervish Village. Is that right. the kind of work? Y- yes. I mean, I just in terms of that, that uh, public outreach, public consultation, process there is no city i have worked in anywhere in the world that has anything like the extent of that process that we have here by a factor of three four or five i mean i would be doing big projects in the london docklands and we would have public meetings and 15 people would turn up uh and uh similarly in in manchester uh it's fascinating that we have this unique culture of involvement it's almost a, a a um a Toronto sport, a recreational activity that people uh, seem to indulge in to the, an extraordinary extent. Uh, and it's something that is pretty much unique. I'm not altogether sure, i got to say, that it's such a great thing. Um, there's, there, there, uh, we're, not, we're very good at talking. We're very good at having the right emotional reactions to things. We're not actually very good at getting it done. And I think this is going to be something that... Toronto is going to suffer from more and more because now we are a very, very, very big city and we've got to get a whole bunch of stuff done. And that brings us right to the book. Uh, you sort of open uh, with a, a dual character study of Jane Jacobs, which right. listeners will be very familiar with, and Robert Moses, uh, a former sort of eminence gris in uh, New York uh, public planning that uh, listeners will probably be fairly familiar with as well. And uh, you, you sort of show two two sides of a coin in city development. One is a kind of grassroots theorist, and mm-hmm. uh, the other is uh, a person who has his hands firmly on the levers of power and knows how to use those levers to get major projects accomplished in a sort of regional capacity. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a slightly cartoon um, contest between the two. What's fascinating about the fact that the Jacobs-Moses struggle has been the subject of a ton of books. There's even been an opera in New York recently mm-hmm. put on. Um, and I think it's very important in this city because essentially we have never had the Moses side of the story. Uh, if I tell you that Moses built hundreds of thousands of affordable housing units, uh, in which are really, to this day, pretty darn good uh, environments. If I told you that he built 750 parks in New York City, um, all anybody can remember about him is that he built uh, one too many expressways, which he didn't actually build, that ran through Jane Jacobs' neighborhood, and that ended his, uh, his career. Uh, were, were Moses uh, a man who was building subways he would be, uh, you know, we'd have statues of him all over the place. He was incredibly clever at figuring out that to build a city, you got to have, basically, you got to have the brains, you got to figure out what the heck you got to do, you got to have the heart that actually figures out that this is the right thing for the citizens to do, you got to have the wallet, in other words, you got to have the money, and you got to have the arm. Uh, and I. Jane was a wonderful person. I knew her personally. Um, but she was not someone who built cities. Uh, she was essentially a critic. Uh, and um, the the thing that's happening now in the world is that the particularly the Asian cities, but frankly also London and Paris, are showing us that you you really need a, a, a very strong muscular process in order to build a city. 
uh, and uh, that essentially having the right uh, emotions and right heart uh, isn't sufficient. I mean, uh, in certain urbanist circles, uh, speaking about Moses in this way uh, would get you run out of town. <laughs> well, I, I, I live here, so you can't run me out. Uh, no, I, I agree with that. And I, it's partly provocative, I, I'll admit that. But what's fascinating, when I started working in New York uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s, um, a lot of the people that I work with there on Battery Park City and other really great urban projects um, were actually uh, the people who had worked with Moses uh, during his career. They held him in very high regard. And I said to myself, am I really hearing this right? Uh, and these are people I had a lot of respect for. Now, he was, he was no saint, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, but, and towards the end, it's clear that he became a little unbridled uh, and, and he had to be stopped. Uh, and, uh, and, he, and he was stopped. But um, do we want to talk about Baron Hausman? Sure, please. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I just read a wonderful book on Baron Hausman, and um, he, he created Paris as we know it. Uh, he drove great boulevards through uh, almost medieval uh, fabric that was there before. Very, you go to a few parts of Paris where you can feel that old uh, medieval fabric there. Um, why did he do it? Basically, because he wanted to bring clean water. Uh, everybody says it's because he wanted to bring the army in, but there's no that's a, a myth, not a fact, as it would seem. He was essentially someone who wanted to provide a good living conditions. He wanted to, to deal with the whole pro, uh, issue of waste and sewerage. Uh, and he produced the modern city that we all adore. Um, there's no way in the world that we would accept a Hausmanesque view of dealing with Toronto. Mm -hmm. um, but that does mean that we are freezing in place a physical form um, that actually isn't appropriate for the city of the 21st century, which is now, you know, you, you, anybody can count someone between the, the 10th and 12th most significant city in the world. Mm -hmm. And an interesting development, uh, thinking about Paris nowadays, is some of those grand boulevards, they're toying with pedestrianization and that kind of thing. That's right. And, and, and um, they're very flexible. Uh, and there's, uh, you're actually seeing this wonderful LRT system that's developing uh, and um, very good bike lanes because you've got the room to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, and this physical form of essentially the six, eight-story street wall um, with a very broad boulevard that can have uh, bike lanes, bus lanes, LRT lanes, and traffic lanes, uh, and uh, wonderful rows of, of plane trees. Um, that's actually served the city very, very well and has adapted to a whole bunch of new technologies and new lifestyles. Right, so it's not just one uh, philosophy over another, it's maybe a mix? It is, <laughs> and, and what's also, so what's interesting now is let's look at the places that are doing really fantastic things. I mean, if you go to Paris, there is a marvelous rail deck development uh, in back of the Gare d'Austerlitz, uh, which I recommend any urbanist to go and see. This is a very bold thing to do. All kinds of, uh, you know, big decking over rail tracks, really uh, interesting development. Uh, look at King's Cross in London, same kind of thing uh, around King's Cross Station. Um, and uh, what you're seeing here is cities saying, we're, we're going to be interventionist, we're going to be activist, we're going to remake the city, we're going to use... Uh, a former industrial or railroad or port land. Uh, but we're going to do it in a... Uh, we're not going to be timid about the way we do it. And uh, I think that combination, they've got that magic thing of the brain, the heart, the wallet, and the arm put together. That's what it takes to build a city. Um, speaking about uh, local government, uh, 
you, you say in in the book that uh, you know it's often overlooked. Sometimes you know, local representatives are are you know sort of caricatures. They're made fun of. Uh, they're not mm-hmm. thought highly of. Um, certainly, the current premier doesn't think very highly of that level level of government. Um, but you talk about the the need to be at at once big and small at the same time. Yeah, when you see municipal government, city government, really working, it's a thing of beauty. Uh, New York City under Bloomberg was 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 extraordinary. Uh, London, interestingly, even under uh, uh, Ken Livingston and Boris Johnson, people who've sort of gone a little astray since then, uh, are, are was 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 remarkable because you had this wonderful level of government that was um, at the at the at the metropolitan scale. So you had the Greater London Assembly, or you have uh, the, the New York City uh, mayoral uh, system, um, which enabled those people to have a very strong span of command, then underneath that, you would have the boroughs. So you have 44 boroughs in, in London, you have seven boroughs in New York, you have uh, uh, Paris has just reorganized itself along this, this way as well. So you have what's called Grand Paris, which is the, the big government. And then you have all of these arrondissements underneath it, which do the local things. That's a real, really good trick because the vast majority of the electorate are genuinely and legitimately concerned about uh, front yard parking, about local traffic, about um, making sure that their their school is uh, easily accessible, about uh, noisy parties around the corner, and all, all that kind of stuff. That's what city councillors do. If you if you ever look at their docket, that's. 80, 90% of what they do. But at the same time, there's a layer of government which does the big things, the transit, the economic development, the big projects, uh, and, uh, and f- frankly, the response to climate change, which has to be done at that level. So the difficulty we have in Toronto is that we, we only have one level. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to get reelected, a local councillor, frankly, has to deal with, uh, you know, dogs that bark all night and sort that problem out. Right, uh, backyard uh, trees. That's right. And, 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 that it, and uh, you know, that's legitimate. That's a form of democracy and, 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 and you need someone to do that. But there's nobody responsible for the city as a whole other than the mayor. And the mayor is a very weak mayor. What's interesting to me about that is in Toronto, we had that sort of layer of government when we had the old metro uh, government. Yeah. Uh, because I, I follow city council quite a lot. And I, I do see that uh, we have problem problems thinking regionally because if, if one councillor says, well, my constituents want a bike lane in, in my ward, then another councillor turns around and says, but my constituents want to be able to drive unimpeded yep. at, at a breakneck speed yeah. through your ward. And then it's just at loggerheads. Um, I'm not saying necessarily we go back to, you know, we turn the clock back to, you know, the 90s, but uh, there is room for a discussion about uh, maybe a, another layer of government like we sort of had. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it's it's what they call a wicked problem. Um, I actually was involved in 1996 uh, with Bob Ray and then with uh, Premier Harris uh, trying to figure out what the structure of uh, city government ought to be in the region. And uh, Anne Golden uh, uh, wrote a wonderful report making suggestions in that regard. Uh, they they weren't completely adopted by any means, but there was a sense then that this was an issue that ought to be dealt with. If you think about the way the world has changed since 1996, ask yourself the question, what's the city? Mm-hmm. The, the, the city of Toronto is two and a half coming on three million people in the middle of an urban region, which is eight million going on 10 right. uh, and 12 in a, in a few decades time. Um, if you want, and that's the region that is being planned by the upper tier government in Paris, 
in London and in New York. Uh, it's not um, the, 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 the old core city. So uh, could you ever get a metropolitan government for something that went from Oshawa to Hamilton and, and up to Barrie? Because uh, that's actually, frankly, the city now. Right. Um, uh, I, I see it as very unlikely because the, the province would legitimately at that point say, well, what the heck, where's the province then? Right. Um, when you've got the whole core out of it. Uh, it's a really, really tricky one. I think you probably have to take it by theme. Uh, I am a big supporter of having a, a, a powerful, strongly financed, strongly regulatory regional transit system because that's the problem that we are absolutely not um, solving. So I, 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 I'm not viscerally opposed, as a lot of people are, to the uploading of, of, of pieces of the TTC. I just hope it's done really well. Mm. So that you, Because that's essentially uh, in both you know, Paris, London, and New York. New York's slightly different, but in Paris and London, the, the senior level of government is responsible for the entire transit system. And then it is kind of franchised out to the neighborhood and local level. Um, I don't think uh, sort of city irredentism serves us very well uh, in that in transit at all. And a separate but related problem that you speak to in your book, uh, you know, related to transit and connecting a region is, you know, this city uh, especially, but I'm certain cities all over the world, we are seeing an increasing gentrification of the downtown core. Uh, and so a greater divide of uh, wealth uh, between the rich downtown and, and the uh, sort of poor inner yeah. suburbs. Yeah. Um, so... How can urban planning sort of help to curb that increasing wealth divide? Well, transit. I mean, it's very interesting. I'm working in London right now on the, the Crossrail projects. And um, for those who don't, aren't familiar with it, these are big regional subways. They're about 100 miles long. And there's one east-west one, which in theory will open next year. Uh, and there's a, a north-south one coming. Why did the government do it? because they wanted to connect people and jobs. And they very specifically identified the areas where uh, there was high unemployment, where there were, was low incomes, uh, and wanted to connect those to the places where there were job opportunities. So transit is actually one of the ways in which you spread the wealth, and also one of the ways in which you spread the housing market. I mean, Hamilton, you know, frankly, is is 50K away. Mm. Um, it's not a long way away in in... Uh, in a normal uh, Western city, that would probably be about half an hour, 45 minutes. I uh, literally biked there last but it, weekend. That's right. <laughs> well, good for you. No, it's true. I may have taken you more than 45 minutes. But yes. <laughs> but but uh, um, so all of a sudden you add Hamilton to the Toronto housing market. You add Oshawa. You, you add um, Ajax, Whitby, lots of really actually very, very nice places. Um, and you do that in a really structured way. That provides housing choice for a lot more people. Uh, and connects everybody to the uh, the metropolitan housing market. The other thing is very interesting. Paris is now uh, going very strong on peripheral circular transit, uh, connecting all of the outer suburbs, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the radial system that uh, that, that they've got. Uh, and it's it, it you know I, I've the business cases for these uh, subway subway investments, uh, LRT investments are done on how much can we reduce welfare costs, how much can we reduce unemployment costs. Imagine those being considerations on where you put transit. A question that, that brings up for me, uh, and we might not have, have a solution here yeah. today, here and now, but uh, you know, is there a way also to uh, 
prevent, uh, you know, attractive urban solutions like uh, better transit uh, from promoting gentrification. If, if we build uh, some great link to Hamilton, a lot of people in Hamilton are already upset about, uh, you know, what they see as Toronto hipsters coming and gentrifying what they saw as a very affordable alternative to uh, living in Toronto. Well, I don't know if it's a planning term, but tough. Uh, I'm not opposed to gentrification, largely because I've spent a hell of a lot of my life in cities that are going in the opposite direction. Don't anybody believe that the social fabric and structure of a city is set in stone? It, It moves up and it moves down. When I came to this town... Rosedale was a dismal neighborhood. Right. All right. So just uh, now it's it's picked hugely. There are areas of the city which are probably sinking slightly right now in terms of of that some of that inner suburban ring. This the city's a almost organic entity, and it 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 grows and it changes. And there there frankly is not going to be any policy that you can. Uh, put in place that sort of sets and says Parkdale has got as gentrified as we're ever going to permit it and we're not going to allow that go, to go any further. Um, places age, places change, tastes change, economic patterns change. We've got this huge swoosh of people into the central city right now. I would guess in a decade or so you'll see a swoosh r- running back in the opposite direction. Because Another that's, so-called white flight. That's right. It, it, well, I, I don't think it's going to be white flight. I think it's going to be the fact that um, the balance of where it is, uh, where economic activity is taking place in the city, will change. Right now, it's taking place entirely downtown. So, where do the tech jobs go? You know, where where is all the, the investment? It's it's downtown. You could you beginning to see in um, in New York City, White Plains, Newark, Bridgeport. All of those totally wrecked, dismal cities around the periphery of New York City are gentrifying. And to me, hallelujah, because they were in such desperate strait that they really needed that investment. Um, so, And that's because New York City got too expensive. So the jobs moved out uh, to those that peripheral ring of cities. I could easily see that happening to Oshawa, Whitby, Ajax, Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be a darn good thing. But I guess my question is, uh, you know, if we're trying to uh, uh, use urban planning to solve things like wealth disparity, uh, what kind of fail-safes can we put in that, uh, you know, we're, in, we're improving the region without pushing people further and further yeah. out or well, displacing the, them? I mean, one of the things is I think it wouldn't be bad having a good debate on wealth disparity in, in Toronto because it is the least unequal city of any of the top dozen cities. People think that we've got this huge disparity between rich and poor. Overall, we don't. Uh, we, are, we're, we are at a level of the Scandinavian cities or Paris. Uh, we're actually an outlier in that regard. Um, so uh, I am much more concerned with making sure that you have a basic uh, citizenship right of good schools, good libraries, good parks, safe streets, those are the things that essentially are the uh, the insurers that uh, inequality doesn't grow. Um, it, it it's fascinating to me that we as a city uh, accommodate, frankly, more successfully than any other city in the world, 125,000 immigrants a year. That's yeah, London is at 30,000. New York is at 40, 50,000. Paris is at 30,000. I mean, we are, and we're smaller than those guys, and yet we are somehow bringing all of that, that 
humanity into the city more successfully than any other place. And everybody can argue on the margin in the individual case, but if you look at the numbers, uh, it's, it, it's, it's an extraordinary achievement. Um, and why can you do that is essentially because of really good public infrastructure, uh, which if, if you're, a, if you're a, a, a techie coming here from uh, Bangalore, uh, you can, without any hesitation, send your kid to the public school system. Mm-hmm. I want to tell you, there ain't a heck of a lot of other cities in the world that you would do that in. Right. Uh, and so I, I also don't think that urban planning, it, 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 the machine doesn't work that way. Urban planning doesn't fix uh, income inequality. Income inequality uh, or, 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 and, and uh, wealth creation, which is the, the fundamental purpose of a city, uh, is essentially driven by a bunch of much bigger economic factors. Uh, the cities. That's why I say city planners shouldn't get ahead of themselves and too full of themselves. Essentially, we are mechanics. We are plumbers trying to make sure that the big city works as well as it can. Right. Uh, you say in the book that you're sort of wary of uh, elaborate urban planning theories. If, if there's a manifesto in this book, it seems to be don't rely on manifestos. Yes. I, I, I actually, the, the, the manifesto is get it done. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's absolutely obvious what we have to do in Toronto. Uh, we have to build double the amount of transit that we've got right now. We have to build affordable housing at the scale that New York, Paris, and London are doing. Other cities are doing it, we're not. Uh, we, we have to uh, fill these huge voids in the urban fabric, like Downsview or, 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 uh, or the Portlands uh, or, or the, the emptiness of so much of the, uh, the, the inner suburbs. Uh, other cities are doing that very successfully. Um, we have to figure out uh, why is it that Paris is saying no more diesel or gasoline-fueled cars by 2032? Paris, uh, London is saying uh, no more such cars by 2040. Uh, New York City just put in place a congestion charge. I mean, other cities are, if we're going to solve climate change, we are going to have to do this in a very, very practical fashion and get our act together quickly. Uh, and um, there's a lot of really marvelous uh, examples of other cities doing this. And so this is the agenda. Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't think we all need to think too much about it. Uh, well, Joe, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. My pleasure. The new issue of Spacing Magazine is hitting shelves, and we dive deeply into an often unloved aspect of the city, laneways. Michelle Sanaya, co-founder and executive director of the Laneway Project, has some ideas about how to activate these spaces to make them more resilient, safe, and enjoyable. Hey, Michelle, first of all, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I wanted to begin with uh, just asking, who is the Laneway Project, and how did you all come together? Sure. The Laneway Project is a planning and placemaking not-for-profit focused on uh, laneways and their revitalization, specifically turning them from, you know, what they are in a lot of cities right now, um, which is sort of purely utilitarian, heartless, kind of dirty, maybe unsafe feeling spaces into spaces that 
you know, are, are spaces for people that feel good to be in as a person and that also still work robustly for all of those unsexy servicing functions that are so essential um, to what laneways do as part of our, our built space. And how about you? How did you get involved? I guess I... I'm, I come from an architecture and urban design background, and I was doing some other public realm work with um, with my work at the time. And I guess as with anything, when you're looking at a particular bucket of stuff, in this case public realm, you sort of become aware of, I guess, more, more depth and more nuance to what's going on with it and sort of became aware of these laneways as kind of really underused spaces and with all... You know, that we're always hearing about, you know, population growth and the strain on infrastructure and all of that, that didn't seem to make very much sense um, just because they're already publicly owned. And it seemed that, well, surely someone must have seen, you know, the sort of the opportunity here and the fact that, you know, these can actually, we can be using these better um, than we are now and we can be sort of designing and and constructing them better than we're doing now. And so that was sort of the... Uh, the genesis of it. And I should say that another woman, Ariana Cancelli, is the co-founder and she sort of came to a similar conclusion from a bit of a different place. And so we decided to partner together. When people think about laneways, I think you kind of mentioned, you sometimes think about trash, you know, you think about cars, you think Mm -hmm. about raccoons. (laughs) It it can be dark. uh, And I I think few people give laneways much thought. So uh, what potential do you see in them? We see the potential for them to be just sort of fully integrated parts of our public realm in a way that they're not now. Um, Currently, they're functionally, a lot of the time, they're used as multi-use spaces for, you know, for things other than purely service deliveries or parking access or garbage storage, which is what they're sort of explicitly designed for. Mm -hmm. So they're they're sort of these these accidental or, or... unacknowledged multi-use spaces um, and, you know, quite quite an interesting layer of our public realm that, um, you know, that from our perspective really has the potential to be knit into and complement uh, the other elements of our public realm, like streets and parks and squares and things like that, and even sort of the, the ground floors of, you know, adjacent buildings. And so you kind of touched on this, but I wonder where do laneways fit into the city's overall transportation network? Because a lot of think, people just think about cars and garages when they think about laneways. For sure. So laneways, um, if you look actually at... Um, in 2017, the city came out with a, a complete a set of com- complete streets guidelines. So there are two types of laneway in there, but they're they're obviously our smallest rights of way. Um, they range from three to six meters in width, which sort of de facto makes them function as shared spaces. Like there's not space in that width for you know a separate vehicular lane, separate sidewalk, separate bike lane, and so even when they're not designed as such, they're used as multi-use spaces and they're not used as um, sort of throughways in the way that a street is. They're often used as, you know, first and last 500 meter, 200 meter access to properties. Mm -hmm. Um, Or they're sometimes used as workarounds, like if there's construction on the main street and people get fed up and they'll they'll go through the laneway. Um, But at the same time, they're also used... You know, just as they're used first and last 200 meters for people driving to properties, they're used in that way for people cycling to properties. And the same thing with the workaround of construction. They're used often as um, sort of community spaces, um, you know, spaces for kids to play. Um, you know, sometimes you get people with, you know, like a workshop in their garage and they open it out to the laneway and then, you know, what they're doing in the garage sort of spills out into the space. Um, so they're... 
you know, on the one hand, they have their role as rights of way and as spaces that provide that sort of last 200 meter access to our properties for delivery, parking, whatever. But th at the same time, um, and this is, I guess it's similar to other rights of way, you know, like streets in that there's multiple things going on, but the difference in laneways is that they're so narrow that we need to sort of think of them as spaces where those, those things all have to sort of share space. When you talk about laneway activation, what, what does that really mean in real terms? It means turning the laneways into living spaces rather than sort of dead feeling spaces. Mm -hmm. um, and a big part of that is sort of acknowledging and, you know, regulating and designing and constructing them as multi-use spaces. Because if you look at... Um, purely the service um, aspect of laneways, you know, using, for, using them for, you know, parking access, deliveries, you know, garbage stores, sometimes garbage pickup and things like that, that accounts for a very small percentage of their time, depending on, you know, how busy adjacent businesses are in commercial laneways, for instance, you know, it can be like five to 10% of their time. Mm -hmm. um, but that means that when they don't feel particularly welcoming for anything other than that, you have a whole lot of sort of dead air, so to speak, yeah. in that line, a whole lot of dead time. And then you have the Jane Jacobs sort of eyes on the street thing exactly. that's missing. And, exactly. Right. Um, and yeah, it becomes a sort of a positive feedback loop once you do start putting improvements into the spaces that make them feel like spaces that are welcoming for people. Then you get more people coming in more eyes on the street, um, more people caring about the space, and it sort of it snowballs in the in the right direction. And do you look to other cities for inspiration? Are there cities that do laneways well? Definitely, yeah. And the interesting thing when looking at other cities is that you know there's a certain toolkit that other cities use, but it's always you know in its the way it's actually used and the specific solutions that are developed. They're always specific to the particular context of that city. So when you look, for instance, at Vancouver. Um, you know, we've all heard over the past number of years about their, you know, their housing crunch. Um, you know, they're, they've, got, they've got a real issue with housing provision and affordability and everything. So there, they led with laneway housing because that was the, the sort of the pressing issue there. Um, you know, the, the housing, I guess, bucket. Um, when you look at a city like Chicago, they had a real sort of environmental issues in their laneway. They had, they had a lot of flooding um, and you know, the attendant sort of hard surface and, and sort of city problems with, you know, heat island effect and all of that. So they have approached their laneways or their alleys um, with a very sort of infrastructural uh, focus. They, they get permeable paving in there. They get, um, you know, vegetation along the edges to deal with those environmental issues, but from a very infrastructural perspective. And then when you look at a lane or a city like Melbourne in Australia, their issue sort of 20 years ago is that they were becoming a donut city. No one wanted to live or work in the downtown. Everyone was fleeing to the suburbs and inner suburbs. Um, and so the approach that the municipality took there to sort of reversing that trend was to develop sort of micro scale spaces, you know, retail and studios and things like that along their laneways because they have quite a dense network of laneways in the same way that Toronto does. Um, and so again, there, they, they sort of led with the, the micro retail um, component. And then from there, it sort of blossomed out to include the, you know, the improvement of the laneways 
as public spaces because that's sort of a no-brainer once they're accessing people's shops and cafes and restaurants and things like that. So as I was saying, you sort of you see a common set of tools being used in all of these, but but the way that they're put to work and and the exact way that they're used differs and sort of exists in response to the particular context of those cities. Is there a uniquely Toronto laneway? I mean, we, we have an example of, uh, you know, a fairly iconic laneway on Croft Street, which mm-hmm. is, you know, not quite a street, not quite a laneway, yeah. it's somewhere in between with like, you know, wonderfully painted garages that were part of an art project that's mm-hmm. been ongoing for a number of years now. And you've got the mural dedicated to the Great Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that something you look to for inspiration or are you looking for other solutions to sort of activating these places? Yeah, so I would say that in Toronto at the moment we have more uh, more opportunity than uh, best practice example. Okay. Um, but I mean that said, over the past sort of four and a bit years, we have worked with more than thirty communities to assess and revitalize their laneways, and there are while there are not sort of common best practice examples of solutions in the city. I mean, there are some. I shouldn't say that there are none, but there you know, in terms of like the tools that can be used. But what we do have is a common set of things that need to be done in the laneways. And these are these are the I guess we sort of put them into eight buckets, the sort of the things that come up every single time, no matter which laneway we're looking at, no matter which community we're speaking to. And we've worked, you know, throughout the length and breadth of the Toronto Laneway network from sort of Eglinton down to the lake and Jane out to Vic Park and sort of everywhere in between. Mm-hmm. So that's something that, that is sort of interesting coming out of that work that, you know, although there's a huge diversity of different communities, you know, spatially, socially, economically within that, that spread, um, there are these common things that come up. And we sort of a bit tongue-in-cheek call them the laneway no-brainers because it's stuff like, you know, good lighting, proper waste management, proper traffic management, you know, serviceable and well-maintained paving and things like that that really are no-brainers for other types of public space, but that currently, certainly in a sort of systematic way, we're not doing in our laneways. And uh, can you walk me through what you call a place-based laneway assessment? What's the process and how do you begin? Yeah, so I guess um, at, at its core, that's sort of the assessment of the laneway not as a sort of detached technical thing but as an actual place that exists in an actual neighborhood um, that has actual people using it so when we when we work with communities to assess their laneways you know we start by asking very basic questions that all of us you know from having been in a space have ready answers to you know what's working here what's not working here and then we sort of broaden that out um you know how does this space what is this space's role in the community? You know, what is its potential in the community? And, you know, what do people want to see and what do they not want to see in the space? And always in the context of what this space is doing as part of, you know, the local public realm network. Um, And assessing a space, not looking at purely at sort of technical considerations, but looking at, you know, if the say if the paving is broken and rendered, well, what that means is, you know, someone trying to move through that laneway with a stroller or in a wheelchair actually has issues moving through that. And that has a real sort of personal impact on, you know, the the sort of accessibility and, and the ability of people to navigate that neighborhood. It also maybe has drainage issues that has implications for adjacent property. So it's looking beyond the 
you know, the sort of dry issues to look at what, what does that mean when you look at this laneway as a place that people use? So it seems to me, I mean, if you look at the history of the city in its sort of early days, uh, you're looking at laneways, uh, you're looking for a return to the sort of thing you'd see in, in the former St. John's Ward, which used to be right downtown, where laneways mm-hmm. were actually uh, a community network. People lived there, people for played sure. there. Uh, there's a lot of things about Victorian Toronto we probably don't want to return to. Uh, like the horse manure? Yeah, horse manure, <laughs> cholera and the drinking water. Those those are bad, but it, it's interesting that in some ways, all these years later, we're looking to actually return to that sort of messy urbanism of early Toronto. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think about that a lot that you know we sort of had that interim period where everything was strictly separated even though that's not how people actually use um the city and you know the particularly the public realm um but yeah it's interesting to see as you say that now we're sort of getting back to sort of acknowledging that no 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 these are multi-layered and these are sort of these are messy spaces that a lot of things go on in and you know we should be treating them as such Finally, Dave Meslin does a little bit of everything. He was there in the early days of Spacing Magazine, when people were just coming together over a love and concern for the public realm. He has advocated for voting reform and better public-facing outreach from local government. He's an activist, organizer, and always looking for ways to get people involved in their city. I talked to him about his new book, Teardown, at his favorite coffee spot. You come right out of the gate in the book talking about apathy as kind of the the main problem to solve. You you show very graphically with a you know the numbers of people who voted you know liberal, or the number of people who voted conservative, and then the number of people who just didn't vote. And that's pretty telling. It's the largest block, right? Yeah. Consistently at every level of government. Yeah. And so when you see those numbers, what does that tell you? It tells me that people are actually paying attention, to be honest, because it's not apathy. It's it's cynicism, <laughs> and I think it's. I think it's well-deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't always vote. Right. And when I do, I have to drag myself to the polls. Mm-hmm. And when I dragged myself to the, to the provincial poll a few months ago, I lined up, got my name crossed off the list, right. got my ballot, and I declined it. Sure. Right? Because the system is a scam. Right. We're given these two or three choices. You know, hey, vote red or blue. Maybe orange, but orange really just helps the blue. And don't even consider green, because right. that really helps the blue. So all these games, what kind of marketplace limits your choice to two options or three options? It's gross. Right. So we have young people growing up in a world where everything is based on like infinite choice. Music and movies and uh, information on social media. And then they get this paper ballot and they're told, hey... There's three parties. Two of them have been trading power back and forth for 100 years. Right. Pick, pick one. Yeah. And by the way, whatever that party implements, the next party's going to win four years down the road and undo it all. Sure. And they're going to spend those four years yelling at each other in a thing called a legislature. Right. <laughs> and none of them actually have any power 
because the political um, parties are all dominated by the leader's office, Mm -hmm. and all of our legislators are puppets who are told when to vote and how to vote and what to say. Of course people are staying home. So rather than pointing the finger at at those people and saying, why aren't you voting? Why don't we look at the environment that is discouraging them from voting and fix that? Right. And it starts at an early age. Like We we don't really have any kind of civics education to speak of uh, i mean yeah. i've been out of school for quite some time now but uh you know when my my friends are old enough to be parents now and i'm not hearing oh, anything's yeah. really different no it's it hasn't changed at all so we do a half credit in ontario mm-hmm. a half credit <laughs> that tries to cover municipal provincial and federal politics right which is absurd you could do a full credit on each of those separately and you would just be scratching the surface. Yeah. And then you could do a fourth credit on how nonprofits and charities work, how, how, how advocacy works. Like, what is community organizing? Right. Like, how are, why are we not teaching that in schools? So I think we're actually teaching apathy in the curriculum, mm-hmm. but also in the book I talk about how schools are structured in a way to really teach about uh, obedience right. and how to, that, that, that we reward obedience and... That is the opposite message of what people need to learn in terms of engagement. So being involved politically is, is, is an act of giving yourself permission to challenge the status quo, to challenge authority. Mm-hmm. And if you've been raised in environments that is all about rewarding those who follow authority figures, whether it's a teacher or a principal, and that interacting with an authority figure like a principal is, is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, of course, people then lie low as adults. Right. Like that's what it's called the hidden curriculum. All the things you learn in the school environment that isn't actually in the textbook. Arguably, those are more important than, than the course content. It's how you're socialized for how, the rest of your life. Yeah. yeah. I mean, being in school is about being quiet and listening. You might get, I mean, obviously, there's great teachers out there who are doing their best to give kids. Uh, a sense of confidence and independence within the existing structures. But the structures are rigged against, against um, basic humanity. And one of the most forward-facing structures is the voting system itself, which you say in the book, any alternative model would be better than the garbage system we're using now. Can you unpack that a little? That's actually polite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would go as far as saying, so the, th- the thing with advocacy is you have to choose your words based on your audience. Right. So... Um, this is spacing. These are my people. So yeah. let me just be really honest here. Please. First past the post is not a voting system. Right? We do not have elections. Right? If you're to define an election as a process in which um, positions and, and options are put forward, and then people have a chance to explore those options and express their opinion on which ones they like, and then the most popular ones win... Um, we don't have that right? in so many ways. So for, from the get-go, we don't have a real spectrum of options put forward mm-hmm. because the threat of vote splitting prevents most people who want to run from running. Yep. So let's say you wanted to run for mayor in the next election on some progressive platform. Chances are someone with a higher profile is also going to do that, yep. and then you're going to be told you're ruining it and you'll drop out. Right. In fact, you'll never even sign up. As you say, like a, you know, Voting is the entry point to democracy. 
you talk a lot about uh, there's a lot of other ways to improve democracy uh, at any level of government. Uh, you know, we can take a, a look at uh, the way our community councils are structured. Or you know, can you talk a bit about some of those uh, sure, ideas yeah. that go you know, beyond voting? The, the ranked ballot stuff is so annoying because no one should have to advocate for that. So what's frustrating about it is that if we could just get through those common sense issues, we could really start exploring the really fun stuff about how to really make democracy work. So for example, as you mentioned, the scale and scope of our municipal governments really affects people's ability to feel um, included. And you know, we call it local government, right. that, that third tier, right? It's not local. You know, when you, you when you have a local government representing three million people, mm-hmm. um, after decades and decades of, of multiple amalgamations that first got rid of you know Long Branch and Mimico and Swansea, and then got rid of others, and then finally got rid of Etobicoke, Scarborough, North York, mm-hmm. uh, York and East York, um, three million people is the size of some countries. Right. It's it's bigger than most states. Like it's it's um, it's massive. There's nothing local about it. So if you want to amalgamate cities for the sake of efficiency, fine. You know, create some kind of regional Toronto. But then you have to create a fourth tier underneath that. Yeah. And there's lots of cities we can look at for great great models. So my favorite people tend to look at at New York. They have these things called community planning boards. It's kind of cool. It definitely breaks it up into smaller, bite-sized boards. So an issue around a, a small park or a bike lane doesn't go to New York City Council. It goes to a planning board, and they have, I think, 60 of them. But they're appointed, and they're appointed by one person, the borough president. So it's still a very top-down process. And obviously, people who really... Um, have a, a track record of challenging authority aren't going to end up on those boards, mm-hmm. right? So it's not a great model. I, I like Montreal's approach. So Montreal amalgamated. Then they went through a process of de-amalgamation where any city could voluntarily leave. Right. Cool. But all the ones that stayed still get to keep their own borough council. Right. And they're elected separately, and they meet separately in smaller groups in the evening. And I've I've, I've been to some of these meetings, and you feel like you're at a little village town hall, even mm-hmm. though you're in within a metropolis. So you go to a Toronto City Council meeting or a Montreal City Council meeting, and it, you know, it's almost like going to a parliament, right? Yeah. Um, you have to break it down into neighborhood level uh, to have accessible decision-making bodies where anyone can show up and feel like their voice is heard. Mm-hmm. So they have a thing called question period, uh, at some of these borough council meetings where you show up and you, you can just ask a question about anything. In Toronto, you can't even speak to an agenda item at city council anymore. Yeah. The city's too big. You used to be able to. In fact, there is a deputation podium built into our city hall so people can ask questions and speak. Yeah. That hasn't been used since 1997. So you can now you can speak as a citizen uh, at a standing committee or community council um, but not at city council. So our, the closest thing we have is our community councils. Mm-hmm. But they're, even those are so big. Each of those represents a space as big or bigger than one of the former cities. Yep. They meet during the day. It's the same people who are on council. There isn't really any awareness of who they are or what they do or where they meet. So, and there's only four of them. 
in a city the size of Toronto, let's say, let's try and put a number on it. What is an appropriate scale for local government? Right. Let's say like, I don't know, let's say 200,000. I'm good with that. I mean, I grew okay. up in a, so I grew up in a city to, of 16,000. Even so. if we went to 300,000, yeah. you'd still need 10 of these bodies yeah. to create local government. If we went down smaller, we're talking like 20, 30, 40, 50. LA has a cool model of neighborhood councils. They have 90 of them. They're elected. Ordinary citizens get on them. They're not really decision-making bodies. It's more like a neighborhood association on steroids. Okay. Um, they get funding from the local government. They can hand out micro-grants. They serve as kind of a conduit between ordinary people and city hall. Right. So it's another model worth looking at. But um, So you can't just look at voting systems. Yeah. You know, I often get tagged as like the voting system reform guy. Um, it's actually a really small part of the democratic puzzle. Right. Um, you could fix our voting system and we'd still be in a huge mess right now. Yeah, even things uh, you've advocated for just uh, you know simpler public notices in plain language that people can understand instead yeah. of these like long, you know, kind of uh, weird typefaced planning announcements that yeah. like, hey, something's happening here. Right, and all, all this is in the book, and the, the reason the book's called Teardown, I, I talk in the, in the intro how, you know, teardowns come in three flavors, and the one people will probably think of first is the smashing one, right? right. So tearing something down, you buy a teardown home, and you rip it apart. Mm-hmm. Um, but I chose the, the title because Teardown has other, um, other um, manifestations. So one is in the auto mechanic world. When you do an engine teardown, it's actually a really slow, meticulous exercise of taking each part out carefully and cleaning it and seeing if anything needs to be fixed or replaced. Right. Um, you're not using a sledgehammer, right? And then the third kind is in the tech world. You know, when a new iPhone comes out, people will tear it down to see what's inside, to see what parts they're using. <laughs> and like the real geeks, um, you know, wanna, they, they don't want to see just how it works and how fast it is, but like, how is it built? So what my book does is it does recommend a few instances where we need a wrecking ball, mm-hmm. absolutely. But it's really this meticulous process of saying, let's take apart this political ecosystem. Yeah and figure out all the parts that are rotten and need to be replaced. And I really believe, like any ecosystem, fixing half of it won't be enough. Yeah. Definitely fixing one or two things won't be enough. Um, I use the word ecosystem because all the parts of our democracy are dependent on each other. And if any part is rotten, the whole ecosystem falls apart. Right. And we have dozens of rotting pieces. So this requires a lot of attention. And the reason I think... Um, I feel like I need to be shouting this from the rooftops, is because people who are often, most people aren't engaged, but those who are, they get caught up in the partisan electoral campaign. So right now it's all, you know, Green New Deal and AOC or, you know, 10 years ago it was Jack and you had Jeremy Corbyn and there's always some, Obama, there's always a hero that you can gravitate towards, get involved with their campaign. And I'm not dismissing those leaders or the advantages of getting them elected. But if we're just focused on who's in power and changing who's sitting in that seat at the top, we're not looking at the rot. Because the rotting pieces aren't about who's in power. It's about how we share power, the shape of power, what people do once they're in office, who gets to run for office in the first place. 
um, how parties share power within their caucus, how parties interact with each other in the legislature. And for each of those, the answer is not just depressing, but terrifying. Mm. Um, it's all become about centralized power within a caucus, within a party, within the legislature, top-down control, silencing of voices, narrowing who can get through the door in the first place. The whole thing is, is just become a mockery of what we're capable of as a species. Right. So I want us to just raise our expectations um, and feel almost like a revolutionary spirit. Yeah. Like, but not a revolution of getting rid of one guy and replacing it with another guy. Like, honestly, that's boring to me. Yeah. And it, it's a recipe for environmental suicide of our species. We're not going to move forward by just focusing on, like, who's going to be the next mayor. It's not going to happen. It's not enough. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please tell your laneway party, your esthetician, and polling volunteer. Special thanks to my friend Thomas McKechnie and the people of Foodsters United for letting me tag along in their march. As always, if you like, share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify, you'll be helping us reach new listeners. As well, we're now available on Spotify, so if you're sick of using iTunes, SoundCloud, or Google Play, you can find us on Spotify. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find his music on SoundCloud at Track82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can tweet at us at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West in Toronto, where you can pick up a copy of the new magazine, Perfect City, and Teardown. Until next time, Raptors over everything. Cheers. Cheers.